The Word of God from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked up out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who has endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those He loves. And He punishes everyone He accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons for what son is not disciplined by his father. If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, our fathers disciplined us and we respected them for that. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather be healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for one single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could, he could not bring about any kind of blessing, though he sought it with tears. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirit of righteous men made perfect. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape... When they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? 
At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God. Wasn't that helpful to have the Word of God recited to you today? So proud of Dale. His passion for um, Scripture memory has infected all of our staff, and uh, so great to hear the Word of God, as it would have been um, recited and read in the context of a community of believers. Well, take your Bibles. Let's go to Hebrews 12, and uh, let's pray together. Ask the Lord to help us. Oh, Father, it is so good to be here today. We love the Lord's Day and all that it means, the way that it helps us to reset our understanding of life. The last six days we have been in the world and tried not to be of it. And here we are now wanting to realign and to reset our purpose, our meaning, and our passion in life. And so would you you speak to us today from Hebrews 12? Use this great book to remind us about the purpose of this church and how we individually are a part of it. And we pray you'd help us and speak to us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday was really special, wasn't it? i gotta, I got to tell you that um, you sound a lot better in this room than the old one. I'll just tell you that right now. Either you're singing better or I know the acoustics were designed. I hope you hear one another singing and that can be both a, a blessing and a challenge, I'm sure. Um, but it was just a special Sunday, wasn't it, to be able to dedicate this space, to be able to sing and to pray and for such a long journey. And then on last Sunday night, we spent some time um, dedicating each seat. The seat that you're in today was uh, prayed over uh, on Sunday evening. You know, there's very few times in a church his- history that you get to do what we've done last Sunday. And it was just such a, uh, a special joy, a special season um, that we're now in as a church. Over the... Um, Over the next uh, three weeks, we're going to be talking about a very important subject, that being missions. And our Missions Emphasis Month is one of my favorite seasons in our church's uh, calendar year. Time for us to talk about our trajectory of trying to reach unreached people groups, about how to use our resources to be able to really bring the good news of Jesus Christ into reaches that are dark and, and spiritually dreary. Before that, we spent some time talking about our core values and who we are as a church. We wanted to reassure you in some respects that moving into this new facility wasn't going to fundamentally change who we are as a church. And now we're moving into a season of um, focusing on global evangelism. After we get through the uh, spiritual emphasis uh, time in regards to foreign missions, we're going to jump into our next book study, which will be the book of First Timothy. But for the next three weeks, we're going to be focused on, as Nate has said, this for that. And uh, you're not going to want to miss what's coming up in the next number of weeks. Today, what I want to do is talk to you about something that's not necessarily new. And it's this particular subject of how do we make disciples? Friends, this is a really important subject because Matthew 28 tells us that um, our aim as a church is to go into all the world and make disciples. So that, when you boil it all down, that's really what we are called to do. And church ministry was not meant to be 
ethereal or theoretical or philosophical primarily. Church ministry was meant to be practical, meaning that it's meant to work in your life and in mine so that spiritual growth is something that is designed to make a difference in your life and mine. And so when we talk about discipleship, we're talking about something that's really important. In particular, it's important for you to understand our structural plan for making disciples here at College Park Church. There's a great book out there called The Trellis and the Vine. And in that book, the author identifies that, that discipleship is an organic process, something that God does by his word and through the Holy Spirit. But what happens is that church ministry can set up the structures, the trellis, if you will, of helping the vine to be able to grow. And so it's important for you to know what that trellis is here at College Park Church, what we have laid out, if you will, as far as the tracks of you growing spiritually, and, and what that looks like for us as we move into this new season that God has put us in. We, we express this trellis of ministry at College Park Church with a singular mission and then a threefold strategy. And you've already heard a little bit of that, but let me just review that with you this morning. So our mission is to ignite a passion to follow Jesus. That's the singular purpose of why we exist. So everything in this church reflects the singular mission. There's not 50 missions, there's only one, 50 different programs, but one particular mission. And then our strategy is the the trellis, the structure, the pathway as we define it for discipleship. And that looks like exalting Christ and experiencing community and embracing a calling. For some time, our elders wrestled with how to be able to capture this discipleship strategy in a clear and concise way to be able to help you understand when we look at church membership, when we look at what it means to grow spiritually, there are some things that we would consider to be the irreducible minimum, if you will. There's a lot of things you could do to grow spiritually, but there's at least a few things that you really have to do. And we've kind of structured this entire ministry around those things. And this morning I want to talk about this idea of discipleship and how we live it out in terms of our philosophy of ministry here at College Park Church. Admittedly, I can't point to one particular chapter and verse. What we're talking about, this idea of discipleship, is bigger than just one little verse. What I can, though, is show you in major sections of Scripture this theme of what it means to be a passionate follower of Jesus and also what it means to exalt Christ, experiencing community, and embrace the calling. I see this all over the New Testament. In fact, I see it in particularly in Hebrews chapter 12 and 13. And so that's what we're going to look at today are these two chapters trying to determine what this notion of discipleship is all about. So first, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? Well, Hebrews 12 follows Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is one of the most famous sections of Scripture in the entire Bible. It's called the Hall of Faith. In it are examples of people like Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Sarah, Moses, and and countless other examples. And, And they're held up as models, if you will, of what a life of faith looks like. And as great of an example as Abel and Enoch and Abraham and Jacob and Sarah and Moses are, the end game in Hebrews is to get you to the ultimate example. And that is Jesus. And that's what happens in chapter 11. It moves us over to chapter 12 where it it recaptures the essential focus of the entire book. And I would argue the entire Bible, which is focused on this person named Jesus. In fact, that's how the book of Hebrews even begins Take your Bible and go all the way back to the beginning of Hebrews, won't you? And look at chapter 1 and verse 2. 
Because in this, the, the author of Hebrews begins by identifying the supremacy of Jesus over everything, especially over angels. And we could talk a little bit as to why Angels was a big deal when the book of Hebrews was written, but we don't have time to go into that today. But just hear the supremacy of Jesus in Hebrews 1 and verses 2 and 3. Here's what it says. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you get the sense? He's trying to lift Jesus higher and higher and higher, and that's just in verses 2 and 3. And the entire book is filled with that beautiful exaltation of Jesus throughout the, 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 the pages, the content, the doctrine, the tone of what the writer of Hebrews wanted us to hear. So when we then go from chapter 11, back this this hall of faith, and he comes into chapter 12, the focus shifts from the historic faithfulness of everyone else to the beautiful faithfulness of Jesus. And so therefore, he reminds them, look at chapter 12 and verse 1, about this great cloud of witnesses, this idea that that, that Abel and Abraham and Moses and Sarah are all behind you, and and you're running this race, and, and then reminds us to take the sins that so easily ensnare us, those things that hinder our running, and lay them aside. And then the writer of Hebrews gets to the main theme of this book and the main theme of the Bible, which is Jesus. The text says... Looking to Jesus, chapter 12, verse 1, or rather 2, we're to run the race that is set before us. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Some translations render it, instead of looking to Jesus, they say, fix your eyes on Jesus. The point is, is that the ultimate goal is Jesus. Notice that the finish line or the the goal is not an idea. The goal is not a concept. The goal is not an activity per se. The goal is a person. So the goal isn't just to be a part of the church. It's to know the king of the church. It's not just to come and understand what religious Christianity is. It is to understand and behold the beauty of a person called Christ. So realize that beholding Jesus is not just something that you do from a religious standpoint that's somehow outside of yourself. It means that when you receive Christ as your Savior and when you worship Him, you are worshiping a person. A person who walks with you. A person who talks with you, as the hymn writer says. A person who speaks to you from from His Word. So when you spend time in His Word, listen, you are listening to a person who is real and alive, who speaks through His inspired text. And it means that the end game is that when you die and then you stand before him, the text says that you will see him and you will be like him. So for all of eternity, the beauty of your experience in heaven, it's not the accommodations, it's not the environment, it is the fact that you see this one to whom you owe everything, and the beautiful thing is as you behold him, you are exactly like him in all of his glory, and you know that you have no reason for being there except for him and his grace. So understand that the goal of Hebrews and the goal of the Bible and the goal of this church is to point you towards a person so that there's a personal relationship, a relationship that is living and alive. Notice how special Jesus is and how he is described. Verse 2, he's described as the founder 
and the perfecter of our faith. So he established it and then he made it happen. And then it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here is the sum total of the gospel. Jesus came, he died, he's, he rose again from the dead, and he's seated today in the position of victory and glory. And it means that those who know this king and know the beautiful reality of who he is, worship him and follow him with unabandoned affection because Jesus is a person and he is the finish line. So it isn't, so Jesus is not just at the finish line. Jesus is the finish line. Your goal isn't just to run to him so you can get to the end. Your goal is to run to him so you can be like him. You don't follow him to something else. You follow him to become like him. And this is really important when things get tough. It's really important when when you have to call for the elders to pray for you, like we did with a, a family just after first service who's battling a newfound cancer. What do you do when that comes? The answer, you run to Jesus. Who's not just an idea, not just a, a thing in the Bible. He's a person. And when you go through hardship and when you go through really hard times, I mean, when the bottom drops out, then you'll learn what the writer of Hebrews says, that he learned to endure as seeing him who is invisible. In the midst of your valley, you can see him. Oh, you can't like see him, but you see him. He is there. Which is why Hebrews says this. Consider him, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So you come to church today, you're weary or faint-hearted. The best thing I can do to encourage you is to point you to Jesus and have you consider him. The best thing is for you to see him in all of his glory and all of his exaltation for you to be able to realize that following him is the most glorious thing in all of the world. When you, when you see him this way, it, it gives you incredible courage. It's what has helped men and women throughout the history of the church to look into the eyes of an executioner. And while being afraid, be confident knowing that even though you kill me, I will rise again because I know whom I have believed in. And I am persuaded that he's able to keep it against that day. So the message of Hebrews is essentially the message of our church. We summarize it with this statement of igniting a passion to follow Jesus. See, our our mission statement is not just some pithy little thing that we hang on a wall. It is that fundamentally we believe to the depth of our soul that what you need more than anything else is to know this Jesus personally. I see my aim on Sunday is getting out of the way and letting you see Jesus. I want you to understand him in all of his glory and all of his goodness. So our mission is to show you the beauty of what it means for you to look to Jesus. For some of you, that means that what you need to do to start down this journey is to repent of your sin and receive Christ as your Savior. To become a passionate follower of Jesus means that you first know that you're in trouble. And your trouble is that you've tried to run your life and you've run it into the ditch. Well, you pull it out, but you run it into another ditch. And the older you get, the deeper the ditches become and the more costly they become. And after a while, you realize these ditches are designed to wake me up to the reality that I am making a mess of my life. And it's Jesus who comes and says, aren't you weary of trying to run things your own way? Why don't you simply let go, admit that you're a sinner, 
And let me come and transform you from the inside out because Jesus can change the one thing that you can't change, which is your heart. And then when you trans, when God by His Spirit and through His Word transforms your heart, then you become a, a passionate follower of Jesus. And that means this, that you begin to follow Him in every area of your life. Jesus takes over. Receiving Jesus means that He, He comes and now your life is marked by the Lordship of Christ ruling over everything. And the single defining mark of your life becomes now, I want to know Him. I want to know Him. I want to love Him. I want to grow more like Him. And the beautiful thing is, the more you know about Him, the more you love Him. And the more you know, the more you love. The more you know, the more you love. And you grow and grow and grow until you reach to the final stage of eternity. And even then, for all of eternity, the more you know about Jesus, the more you love Him. And He's an inexhaustible person to know. You'll never grow weary of Jesus. So much so that here's what the Apostle Paul said about this in Philippians chapter 3. He said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Here is the crazy philosophy of people who are Christ lovers and passionate followers of Jesus. It is that they want to know him. And even if suffering or hardship comes, they look at that and say, awesome, now I get to know Jesus in a whole nother level. Now I get to know him. I get to know him in suffering, and I'm going to share in his suffering that I could become like him. So listen, our mission here is to have you live this way and have you fall deeper and deeper in love with Jesus, to have you follow him faithfully all the days of your life. That is what we are all about, following Jesus passionately. So, If that's the overarching goal, then the question is this. So how exactly do we do that? And for us as elders, we have developed a strategy of ministry or a trellis, if you will, that involves three things. It's exalting Christ, experiencing community, and embracing a calling. You can think of them as three pegs on a stool. You could think of them as the, the different tracks that everything runs down. It's it's not all-encompassing as if this is it, but this does represent the bare minimum. This represents, if you will, the, the ingredients that, that create an environment where discipleship can happen. Take one of these ingredients out and discipleship doesn't happen like it should. And so this is the ingredients, if you will, that, that make things grow. Perhaps you, like me, have come through this summer and now realize that your lawn needs a fair amount of attention. The stress of multiple, multiple weeks without a lot of rain is surface some weak spots in your lawn and so yesterday i like many of you probably went out and tried to fix some of those bare spots and so i got to rake out and started raking up those those brown spots and i found something out that as i began to rake up those spots not only the dead grass was coming up but really good chunks of grass were coming up as well so i got down low and i i kind of pulled the grass and it actually pulled up almost like carpet like a big section of it rolled up and i was like what in the world is going on there were hardly any roots that were going down and underneath my lawn on the the bottom side were all these little white creatures small little let's say it together grubs yeah The, the name just has to be said with a sneer doesn't it grubs like moles. I mean, just, they just kind of go together, don't they? And I see all these little grubs that are down there, and they're all happy, and they're eating my roots. And I'm pretty mad. And so I went and got chemicals to destroy their existence in my yard. So I spread that all over the place. And as we speak right now, they are choking for air. They can't breathe. They're dying. They're withering, and they're, I'm, I'm, I'm beating them. 
And why am I doing this? Because I want to create an environment that my grass can grow. So it needs water, it needs sunlight, it needs fertilizer, it needs to be have no grubs underneath under the ground eating away. I can't make grass grow, but I can create the environment that organically it happens in a more likely environment. I can't make it grow, but I can do things to make that natural process take off. And in the same way, from a discipleship perspective, that's what our aim is, is to create the environment where God, by His Word and through His Spirit, can create life in you and make you grow so that incrementally over your life you can look back and go, oh my goodness, I'm really growing, I'm really changing, I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. I can't make that happen, but we can help it. So what does that strategy look like? Well, the first one is exalting Christ. That's the first one. Now where do we see this in the book of Hebrews? We're going to skip over the section on discipline. That That is connected to the idea of exalting Christ and means that God loves you, so he makes things sometimes difficult, sometimes because of sin, sometimes just to work out remaining sinfulness in you. So everything has its aim of helping you to grow up. That's what that text is all about. And then we skip over to verse 18, to 29, and notice the image of a lofty, high, and supreme God. In fact, the writer brings us back to Mount Sinai. Look at verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So the writer of Hebrews brings us back to Mount Sinai, that moment, that was the the signature moment when God in all His glory showed up. And he showed the people how awesome and how terrifying his glory was. But notice the writer of Hebrews turns it. Look at verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Man, that's good. Isn't it? <laughs> Jesus has ushered us, the writer says, into a new covenant through his blood. In fact, he uses the example that Abel, who was the first person to be murdered, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word. What better word? Well, Abel's blood spoke of judgment because here the first murder happens. And then fast forward, Jesus' murder becomes a better word in that when he was murdered, he paved the way for the new covenant to become a part of our understanding in salvation. In light of all of this, then, the text says that God's people should be filled with worship. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What's he talking about? He's talking about in light of the beauty of who Jesus is, in light of the better word that comes through his blood, in light of the fact that this is the same God who's holy and awesome, he says, therefore, come to him with reverence and awe. He's talking about worship. Do you know you were made to worship? Do you know you've been worshiping all your life? 
The question is not if you've been worshiping. The question is what have you been worshiping? You were created to exalt in something other than yourself. And here's the deal, that we believe fundamentally that central to discipleship is the corporate gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day for the express purpose of meeting with Jesus and beholding the beauty of who He is. Listen, every seven days you need to be in the corporate gathering with God's people to exalt in something other than yourself because your exalt leaks. Your awe leaks. If you're not careful, you go week after week after week and you're not exalting in something other than yourself, you will begin to worship your job. You will begin to worship your car, your kids, your spouse. You begin to worship yourself. You need on a regular basis, preferably about every seven days, to be reminded that Jesus is the ultimate reality in the universe and He is more glorious than you can comprehend. And if you don't worship and glory in Him, you are totally missing out. The problem is not just your sinfulness. It is that you are too easily pleased with trite worship objects. That you would trade the worship of a career over the beautiful reality of who and what Jesus is. And so we believe that fundamental to discipleship is this notion of leading you vertical. You see, all day long, most of the time throughout the course of your week, you go horizontal, 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 and just for a few moments on Sunday, you need to go vertical. You need to be brought out of the the, the normal everyday existence and be brought into the presence of the living God beyond yourself, beyond your sin, beyond your struggles, and to behold the beauty of God in the face of Jesus. And this is why we take the Sunday morning gathering of God's people very seriously. Our view is that Sunday worship is a special meeting with the corporate gathering of God's people, with the creator of the universe and the captain of our faith. That Sunday gathering is serious, important, and it's vital to your soul. So when we approach worship and as we pray and plan and think through what we're going to do together, you need to know that our aim is to lift you up. In the midst of a culture, and honestly in the midst of a church culture in our nation, that likes to take Sunday morning and make it all just about how you doing, how am I doing, we're okay, you're okay, and so simply horizontal and horizontal, the reality is you're not okay, I'm not okay. And what we need is a a lofty view of the exalted Christ. So that means that there will be some times when, yeah, we'll laugh, we'll cry, we'll talk, we'll think. doesn't mean that we're impersonal or stuffy, but it does mean this is serious. Because... All week long, you've gone horizontal, 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 and for an hour and a half, you've got to go vertical. And let me just say, you not only need to go vertical, your children need to go vertical. When I first arrived here at College Park, I was alarmed at how few of our children were worshiping along with their parents on Sundays, and I am I'm thrilled how that has changed. And yet I want to reemphasize that again. Because we need to help create within our kids an appetite for something beyond themselves. And an appetite beyond just their individual peer group. Because even at at a very young age, they absorb far more than what you realize. And they need to see you worshiping. 
I remember as a kid sitting there next to my dad and I'd see him open up his Bible and it was all marked up and I'd watch him take notes. He had one of those Bible covers, you know, I mean, big, thick dog Bible cover. It like opened up like four times and, you know, almost could have stands that went down, you know, I mean, it was a little light, plug it in. I mean, they have all that, but it seemed like that. He had pens all over the place. I was like, dad, you got any snacks in there? You know, I mean, he's got all kinds of stuff. And I used to watch him as he'd take his notes. I learned to worship by worshiping with my mom and dad. Your kids need to learn how to worship by watching. You need to see dad and mom under the beautiful banner of something greater than themselves. It is a grave error. And this is a pastoral admonition. It is a grave error to think that children who rarely have worshipped with anyone except their peers will suddenly discover the value of corporate worship when they are in high school or college. The corporate, vertically focused gathering of God's people from every walk of life, from every age, from multiple cultures and multiple races is vitally important for what it means to follow Jesus so that you understand that the church is bigger than just you and your needs. Sunday morning worship is a sacred time for the body of College Park as we gather before our King and celebrate Him. We need to exalt in Christ. Just yesterday, Savannah came downstairs and she was singing, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And I know she heard that song in this building, in this gathering. Sunday morning worship, however, friends, is not sufficient in and of itself. The second strategy piece is this notion of experiencing community. And I would define this as doing life together. Look at verses 12 and 16. He says, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may many may become defiled. So think of this. When this was written, people didn't have individual copies of God's Word. It was read in community. It was read in a, in a large group setting. So when you see your Bible and it says, Therefore lift your drooping hands, that, the idea is plural. So we got to get south of the Mason-Dixon line to get this one. The idea is this. Therefore, lift y'all's drooping hands. That's what it means. And strengthen y'all's weak knees. You know what I mean? That's a terrible southern draw. I know, but I'm trying. So make straight paths for y'all's feet. That's what it means. It's not just you. You're part of it, but you're part of a y'all. You're part of a greater thing that's going on. So this book was written in the context of community. The idea is you're running, but you're not running solo. The idea is not just to run your PR. It is that you as a team are running together for the purpose of the glory of God. And even clearer is this sense when you see the exhortation. Look at verse 14. Strive toward peace with everyone. And the call, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God in verse 15. So there's clearly here a a mutual obligation. You're to look out for one another. Look out for someone who's, who's not striving towards the grace of God. In other words, you're not designed to do this thing alone. And then look at verse 15. This is such an important verse. It says that no bitterness, no root of bitterness rather, 
springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Now, some people take this to mean in kind of an overly psychologicalized view of the Bible. Well, this is talking about don't become bitter when people hurt you. That's not what this passage is about at all. This is not about bitterness, like emotional bitterness. What this is about, it's about the danger of falling away. In fact, this little phrase shows up in Deuteronomy 29:18. Look at this text. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord your God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest they be, uh, there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That's what it's talking about. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my own heart. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about arrogant self-denial. The root of bitterness is the tragic moment when sin creates a hardened heart and the person is so self-deluded that they do not see that they're on a path to make a shipwreck of their faith. The root of bitterness springs up when a person, particularly a respectable person, walks away from the faith. And the effect is that people are devastated and many are defiled. You know what I'm talking about. You look around and there were people who used to be in this church who are not only in another church somewhere, they're gone. They, they walked off the reservation. And you know what happened. You were like, where did Jim go? Well, Jim's not a Christian anymore. What do you mean Jim's not a Christian anymore? Now, Jim, Jim, Jim said he doesn't believe in Jesus. What do you mean Jim doesn't believe in Jesus anymore? Well, imagine if that was one of our elders. Imagine if that was a teaching pastor. Imagine if I got up one Sunday and said, folks, i got bad news for you. This is my last Sunday. I, I've, just, I've studied and I've determined that this whole thing that we're talking about is just a big scam. I don't believe in Jesus anymore and I'm deserting. I'm no longer a Christian and this is my last Sunday. Goodbye. Imagine what would happen. Imagine the compromise of the faith that it would cause in people. And, and what he's talking about here is the reality of the possibility of someone making a shipwreck of their faith. And so he says, watch out that no root of bitterness springs up. So here's the question. Who is in your life that would know if your soul started to wander? Who is a part of your spiritual formation such that they would sense when callousness and insensitivity to spiritual things begins to start? Who would notice if you were gone for three or four days? Three or four Sundays? Some of you look at it as a big church and you're like, one of the things I don't like about a big church is you could be here and, and, and no one would even know if you weren't here. Friend, that's your responsibility and ours, but yours as well. So who would know? Would anybody? One of the dangers of having a larger church is that someone can just come and they can leave and, and almost be anonymous. And I'm telling you, you can do that for a few Sundays, but that is not good for your soul over the long haul. You need people in your life who could say, you know what, I'm sensing that you're starting to drift a little bit. The way you talk about your wife, your attitude, the kind of how your, your, your whole demeanor, something's going on. What's, what's up with you? You need people who know you well enough to call you on that. And if you don't, you are not strong enough to make it all the way to the end. You need the reality of people and the community of believers to be a part of your life. We have lots of ways that we do that from church membership to big groups to small groups to Bible studies. The point is, you need to find a place where people know you and where you can know them. Exalting Christ and experiencing community, they're, they're, they're two, two legs on this stool called discipleship. Here's the third. 
It's this notion of embracing a calling. And by this, I mean where you use the gifts, the abilities, the talents that God has given you, and you find something to get involved in beyond yourself. This involves discovering God's call on your life. So all of us have a calling. What's your calling? God may not have called you into full-time ministry in the church, but he's called you to full-time ministry in some area. You're not here just to have a job so you can have money, so you can have a house, so your kids can go to college, so they can have a job, so they can have a house. You're not here for that. That's not why you're here. You are here because Jesus has given you a mission to advance his kingdom. And the question is, where does that mission find itself lived out in your life? Spiritual formation in its most basic form involves worship, involves community, and it involves service. So Jesus' mission is to give you a mission. So what is it? could be outside of this church, but you need to have a mission, something that you like, this is what God has called me to. In order to see this, we have to go to chapter 13. So after looking at chapter 12 on the beautiful exaltation of who Jesus is, the context of community, notice now the examples of service. Look at chapter 13 and verse 1. He says, let brotherly love continue. So he begins with this overarching theme, and that's what the church is supposed to be all about. It's supposed to be about people who love Jesus and love one another. So love, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is the greatest of all gifts. It's the aim of Christian ministry, according to 1 Timothy. Paul said the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So love, that means that when you leave this very room today and maybe that the reason you're here is not just to hear and listen but to find someone and to love them and to encourage them to help them the 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 purpose of your life is to love one another if this place can't be about love then it's it's lost its point Then verse 2, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So during the time that Hebrews was written, it was fairly dangerous for Christians to travel. The places that they would stay could be either dangerous or morally dangerous. And so often believers would just stay with one another. And so they opened their homes to virtual strangers in the name of Jesus. So in our our present day, at a minimum, it looks like that when you come on Sunday, you ought to be looking for people who are looking around like, I don't know where to go. They're strangers. They don't know what this place is like. And you ought to reach out to them and and welcome them. You, You create an environment where hurting people don't have a barrier to Jesus by virtue of your love. Or maybe to become one of our folks up here at the front, our first responders, if you will, after the service of hurting people. I had a guy after first service tell me last week, my wife and I came here, what you said had nothing to do with what was going on in our life, but we had a huge burden and we came up and this person prayed with us and we were so touched. That's hospitality. It could be, in another level, things like becoming a foster parent. Adopting a child, that's a beautiful thing that's taken off in evangelical Christianity. There are a few things more like God than adopting a child. Assisting in the challenges of immigration, a whole area that the church is just starting to think about. What do you do with people who are strangers in your own country, regardless of how they got here? Because there were strangers in Israel. Or what do you do about human trafficking? See, the church should be thinking about these things because we were strangers as well. Or verse 3, remember those who are in prison. This was likely for people who had been in prison for their faith, who were, who were 
experiencing a great cost for what they had done in terms of naming the name of Christ. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest to you that ministering to people around the world who are in very difficult environments, unreached people groups, is not dissimilar to ministering to those who are in prison. Verse 7, imitate the life and faith of your leaders, meaning calling them to see themselves as ministers, to, to follow those who lead them and become like them in terms of spiritual calling, giftedness in your arena of service. Verse 13, bear the reproach that Jesus endured, meaning that suffering may be very much a part of your calling. Suffering from a physical ailment, or perhaps even suffering because of the fact that you named the name of Christ. Some of us have this mentality that in order to share the gospel with somebody, they need to be ready and thankful that we've shared it. The reality is, where in the world do we get that idea from? The fact of the matter is, it's Jesus' responsibility to make that word land. Our call is to declare the gospel and don't be offensive, don't be rude, but by all means, don't limit your evangelism until the person is ready to hear it. Because the gospel needs to be gone, spread to all regions of the world, and even if people don't want to hear it, you're still safe in Jesus. Serve some place where someone doesn't say thank you. Verse 16, he summarizes, Do not neglect to do good and to share with what you have. A summary about what it means to understand who Jesus is and to, to share and be involved in people's lives. And finally, verse 18, I don't want to minimize this at all. Paul says, pray for us. Some of you are homebound or the only thing you can do right now is pray. And that's not the only thing. That's a huge thing that you can do to pray and ask for God's covering for his protection over this ministry, for you to seek the face of God on our behalf and say, God, would you bless and pour out your spirit on College Park? You see, this idea of calling is so critical. Because when you combine exalting Christ and experiencing community with embracing a calling, suddenly now you have this beautiful track that's been laid, this spiritual structure, if you will, I think that produces passionate followers of Jesus, at least makes it likely. And you know, I've seen this in my own home. Due to the way our family worship schedule goes on Sunday and how children's Sunday school was adjusted last year our twins had a blank hour on their sunday so we worshiped and then there was nothing and then they had their junior high program and my wife saw this and very wisely said we we can't they can't have nothing and so they need to find some way to serve and i was like okay like like what and she said here's what's going to happen um she decided to leave a sunday school class that she loved and she volunteered in our kindergarten classroom and she said to me, what I'm going to do is I'm going to serve in kindergarten, and then our two 13-year-old boys, I'm going to make them come with me. And I was like, okay. Because <laughs> I'm thinking, so I'm an, I've never would like to be a junior high. Okay, here's an idea. I'm going to go serve with my mom in kindergarten. That, that's going to be an uphill climb. So I was like, all right, but, you know, good luck with that. So hope, tell me how it goes. Now I, so we met with them and sat down and said, here's what... And, and they were cautious, they were willing, but like, really? A little nervous. And you know what happened? Over a year, they got to know kids, got to learn how to be able to minister to them, got to watch their mom do her thing, got to hear things about people's homes behind the scenes and come back and tell me. It was great. So uh, uh, <laughs> I got my spies, okay? so. And then the next year, now they're leading worship, they're um, table leaders, and they've come back before, and, and mom, because she's coached them, has become a bit of a hero. They come back, and they're like, do you know how good she is at teaching kindergartners? They're like, Dad, seriously, she's better than you. I mean, she's really good. 
I said, I know, I know. And they're like, she's, she's really good. And they come back and there's this new uplift that's going, I see them growing. Why? Because of the beautiful combination of what happens in God's church when you get the exaltation and the community and calling in line. Beautiful things happen. And that's what I want to see happen in your life. That's what we want as a staff to have happen in your soul. Here's how the book of Hebrews ends. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. Friends, that's the target. That's the goal. It's worth giving your life to, to find out what it means to worship Christ, get involved in the lives of other people, and to live out your calling in a way that's somewhat risky, somewhat hard, but in the end makes you more and more like Jesus. May God help us to be this kind of church filled with passionate followers of Jesus Christ. So Father, help us now to not just listen and leave and miss the reality of what you want to say on this day, I pray that you would first make us the kind of people who want to follow you with every fiber in our being. And Father, for the the people in this room right now who don't get that, I pray that you'd give them an appetite to see it and to want it. Father, I pray that we would value the exaltation of your Son. And while worship is enjoyable, And at times very fun, it is very serious and very important. So give us reverence and awe. Father, help us to build into one another's lives, to do life together, and then to find the ways that you've gifted us to call us to give our lives for you. So help us, Lord, to be your kind of church that makes disciples for your glory and for the good of the advancement of your kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.